Hello and welcome to Talking to the Top, a podcast made by students for students. My name is Ed. And I'm Freddie. And we will be your hosts. Throughout these episodes, we'll give you an insight into the lives and minds of incredibly successful people in their respective fields, allowing you to learn more about the world that lies ahead of us all, and most importantly, how our brilliant guests got to where they are today. So sit back, relax, and join us as we dive deep into the stories of these amazing individuals, uncovering the secrets to their success and exploring the many twists and turns of their careers. From living and working in Kyoto to becoming the first female president of an academy founded in 1768, our guest today isn't short of a few stories to tell. Having powered through criticism and challenge, she now plays a pivotal role in shaping the course of British art and culture. Rebecca Salter, president of the Royal Academy of Arts, shares some insights into her career so far, so we hope you enjoy the interview as much as we did. Once again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It really is a privilege to have you on here. It's so amazing to be able to speak to someone so high up in the art industry such as yourself. So thank you. Well, it still comes as a surprise to me that I'm the president of the Royal Academy, I have to say. I wake up several times, you know, several mornings a week and think, good heavens, I'm president of the Royal Academy. So <laughs> Well, we're gonna find out, hopefully, how you got there. Um, how I got there, yeah. How, yes. So just to start off, what yeah, do you yeah. think you'd say has been the most important moment in your life that shaped who you are today? Well, I think one of the most important decisions I made, and I at the time when I made it, I didn't really understand quite how defining it would be. So, I mean, this is ancient history to you, but I graduated from art school in 1977. And at that time, of course, New York was the place in the art world. And so all my contemporaries, they just wanted to go to New York because that's where the painting was. Everything was focused on New York. And because I'd been obsessed with Japan since I was a child, I just put all my energies into going to Japan, which at the time was not easy. I mean, now when I think about it, I have no idea how I organised it. I got a place in art school. I got a scholarship. and then. Ultimately, I got a visa, but doing all that without the internet, I don't know how I did it. I must have written letters to people and just sat and waited for a reply. So I effectively set off in the opposite direction to everybody else. And it was quite a sort of, I mean, it was a tough thing to do. I didn't speak Japanese. I didn't know anybody. And I just got on a plane and went to Japan. But it completely changed my life. And one of the most profound things was seeing the world, particularly the art world, through different eyes. Because when you think about the construct, the sort of system of the art world, it is still, despite all the efforts towards diversity and inclusion, it is still a Western construct. Mm. And art history is largely a Western construct the art history that's taught us what you might call baseline art history, and then other people's cultures and art histories are kind of overlaid on it, but the bottom line is that it's Western art history. And so I turned up in Japan, and being, you know, with my fellow students, it was very interesting experiencing how they saw that Western construct and how they and then me as friends with them, we tried to figure out, you know, so what is the place for a Japanese artist in the Western art world, because the use of language is very interesting. So when, you know, when Van Gogh sees a Japanese print, for example, he's influenced by Japanese art, 
But if a Japanese artist looks at a Western painting and does something that looks Western, generally they'd be accused of copying. There's that complete mismatch and it's a power imbalance. So it was very, very interesting to experience that firsthand. And when you were there, how did you, because obviously printing and specifically woodblock is your thing, how did you get into that? When you went there, did you have an idea of what art you were looking to focus on? <laughs> well, this is where I will own up. Um, so I, my undergraduate was actually in ceramics and I got my scholarship was to go and study ceramics at Kyoto City University of the Arts. So I arrived there, but I very quickly realised that ultimately I had the wrong personality for ceramics. Because the thing about ceramics is that you do all this work, then you put it in a kiln. And it explodes. It explodes (laughs) or it cracks or somebody else's thing explodes and damages yours. And I just thought, you know, I can't be doing with this. So... I tried to shift, but the university was a bit strange in that you had to graduate from the door you'd gone in. So I had to stay doing ceramics nominally for two years. But by then, I'd learned enough of the language to be able to sort of go out and meet people and find people to help me with things I was trying to learn. And I found a wonderful professor Kurosaki Akira, who very kindly just sort of, he allowed me to go to one of his summer courses on woodblock printing. And I just did woodblock printing in my own time and I'd go back and show it to him. And so I just sort of learnt it by osmosis, really. Um, So I moved towards woodblock and then I moved to working completely on paper, but not using printmaking. And now I really don't do printmaking at all. I've been mostly painting for the last... 20 years really wow and you were talking about how you knew you wanted to go to japan from a young age would you say that you always knew that you wanted to become an artist or was that something that took a little bit of time to figure out um well this again is very interesting so i went to a very academic girls grammar school and you know in their eyes i was supposed to go off and read history or german or whatever else i was relatively good at at the time and i always enjoyed going to the art room it had never occurred to me that i could become an artist but i just loved making things and what i really loved was <laughs> the the respite it gave you from the things you hated like double maths um, and also the fact that when you're in the art room you are inside your own head and it's a very different way of thinking. Um, and I can distinctly remember on my way out of assembly one day, and I don't know why I did it, but there was some voice in my head that said, you've got to do art. And I walked up to the art teacher and I said, I want to do, I'd done, I'd done the O-levels, that's right. I said, I want to do A-level art. And she said, fine, great. She was a very inspirational teacher. And then all hell broke loose because the school said, no, you're academic. You must go and do history at Oxford or something. And I said, no, I want to go and do art. And then they said to me, you'll never get into art school. Ah. <laughs> so when I was elected a Royal Academician, I was quite tempted. Well, I did write to my old school to tell them I'd been elected a Royal Academician. Wow. Which is why in an interview I said, when I was first elected here as keeper, I said one of the interviews, and it always comes up on Google, is I said, never tell young people they can't do anything. Mm. They can't do something. Because I remember to this day where I was standing, which art teacher said it to me. And I thought, right, 
<laughs> yes, because I, I saw that you said that and um, it made me sort of think that there are um, at the moment, and I suppose it always have been, negative presumptions regarding creative professions. How does that make you feel and how have you coped with that yourself? Well, I I have a particular view about the use of, I mean, we the arts are, are, are referred to particularly by politicians as creative industries. And during the pandemic, we elected Dame Sarah Gilbert, who invented the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, as a fellow of the Royal Academy. Now, in my book, creativity is just as much part of her job as a scientist as it is my job as an artist. And so I, I reject, I think creativity, apart from accountants, they shouldn't be creative. <laughs> I think creativity is for everybody. And I just think lumping us in the so-called creative industries and assuming that what other people do is not creative is just not helpful. I think what we need to do is to make sure every child has access to art in their curriculum, which, of course, in state schools now is really not the case, Yeah, sadly that pressure is that you were talking about earlier to kind of conform to a academic career or follow an academic course is still something that people really struggle with well and also I hate to say it but for your generation you're going to have probably have to have three or four different jobs in a lifetime maybe yeah. you know, because the world is changing and you will have to reinvent yourself and the only way to reinvent yourself is if you've got a creative mind and so um, I think it's increasingly important that people, young people are equipped with the, ab the ability to think creatively. And talking about the world changing, I think not just in kind of the arts, but across all industries, people are quite concerned about the impact of AI and the rise of technology as well. So what do you feel the role of the creative will be in the future? And how will the art industry kind of cope with that change? I think... I think there's good, I mean, there will be good things that come out of it. Things could actually go in the opposite direction. So the more the world moves towards using AI, I wonder whether the actual hand of the artist in their studio will perversely become more valuable. And the humanity that... And the humanity that comes with it, exactly, exactly. I think people might want to experience... Because ultimately, you know, what is it that people want? Why do people come to the Royal Academy to stand in one of our galleries in front of a work of art? And it's largely because they want to experience that as a physical object and also physically stand roughly where the artist stood when they were creating it. And there's something very special about that. I mean, just we're doing very well on Zoom, but if you were sitting across the table from me here, it would be a completely different experience, wouldn't it? And so I think possibly the human hand will become more valued. The the art object that can't be reproduced, you know, so there really would be just the one. So I guess what you're saying is that the art industry may cope better than other more academic industries. I think possibly, yeah. I mean, there will be all sorts of problems with sort of fakes and, you know, mm -hmm. all those kind of things. But that, in the end, makes the hand of the artist even more valuable because it's so hard to fake. Yeah. yeah. And again, just going back towards the beginning of your career, what were 
the difficult decisions you had to make, particularly um, in Japan, making the choice to come back in the end? Because I always think you spent a, quite a good amount of time there. I mean, I was completely happy in Japan. The biggest difficulty about coming back was wondering how I was going to make a living back here because living in Japan at the time, there were relatively few foreigners. So I could live, I had enough money to live by just teaching English 10 hours a week. So that was really hard to give up, knowing that I'd have to move back here and it's unlikely I could find a legal job that would pay well enough. I'd only have to do 10 hours of it a week. (laughs) That was a difficult decision. But ultimately, what was completely undermining was when I'd learnt enough, you know, when I could be, I was fairly fluent in Japanese. And I was always being offered opportunities. You know, people would say, would you like an exhibition here? Would you like to speak on this panel? Would you like to illustrate this book? Would you like to go to this event? And I went to all those things. And ultimately... I never knew whether I'd been invited through merit because my work deserved it or because I was an exotic foreigner who spoke Japanese. So, you know, it was not too much trouble to invite me. And that's really undermining of your own art practice because you've got no you've got no yardstick. So I thought, well, the only thing to do is go back home where you know I blur into the background, everybody looks like me, so I'm not going to get any special you know, offers for anything. It'll just, if I get anywhere, it'll be through merit. And talking about that, when we were interviewing Hugh Bonneville, he talked a bit about imposter syndrome and self-doubt. Have you ever struggled with that? Yeah, um, I think everybody has. I mean, I'm yeah. not sure I've ever met anybody who hasn't. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, in some ways... There's a plus side to it because it means somewhere inside you think, gosh, am I good enough for this? I need to try hard. You know, if you go go in, around the world assuming you deserve everything <laughs> and you're because you're brilliant. People probably, probably won't like it. Well, exactly. You'll be a very unpleasant person. So I think imposter syndrome is, there's a bit of it that's quite healthy. Obviously, being the first female president of the Royal Academy was a big deal, but now, I mean, it's I've nearly done four years and I prefer in a way I really want to normalize it because I just think, you know what, I'm just a human being. And also I, I'm of the generation. I mean, because I went to an all girls grammar school with a lot of very academic teachers, I don't remember ever being told, well, apart from the teacher who told me I couldn't go to art school, but you know, women, we, we were just, it was just assumed that we, we would go off and do things. Mm. And I, I'm sometimes concerned about the focus on, I can't remember what the expression is. If you can't, what is it? It's something like, if you can't see it, you can't be it. I didn't see anyone. I was never taught by a woman artist. I've never, you know, when I was young, I never saw a woman artist. Um, I never saw a woman being president of the Royal Academy, but somebody's got to be it at some point. So I don't really buy this. You've got to have a role model like you before you can do something. In a way, you have written yourself a role model. <laughs> you, you are. Yeah. I and, just got on with it. <laughs> and, and as president of the Royal Academy, what does a regular day sort of look like for you with getting in your own work and obviously doing what you're doing now by like speaking to us? So 
I'm in theory, I work at the, I do my Royal Academy days are Monday to Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And obviously the weekend I'm in my studio. I have to say it was incredibly difficult during the pandemic because, um, you know, when we first closed in March 2020, we were losing a million pounds a month. And so you can't be president, i.e. leading an organisation in that level of crisis and then say, sorry, you can't speak to me on Thursdays and Fridays because I'm in the studio. So it's been quite difficult to pull back and say, you know, I'm not the president on Thursdays and Fridays. But I made a decision again when I became president with my own work that I would, basically there are three things. There's being president of the Royal Academy, there's making my work and exhibiting my work. And I can't do all three because there aren't enough hours in the day. So effectively I've more or less, I don't really exhibit my work. I just do, I'm president, which because I want to do it well. You know, there's again pressure as a first woman to do it well, because otherwise people always say, well, we've had a woman and look what she made a right mess of it, so we won't have another one. Um, so I want to do that well. And then I I decided I was going to just do maybe two large paintings a year, two or three large paintings a year, because I didn't want to have finished my term as president and find that in my studio, I'd got a pile of works that were about 10 centimetres square because that's all I could do because I was so busy because that would be really sad. So I thought I'm just doing one or two big ones a year and that's fine. And when I finish being president, I can look around and decide whether I want to exhibit them or not. And what other sacrifices have you had to make throughout your career? Because I'm sure, you know, a lot of successful people have to make sacrifices to get to where they are. You know, the truth is, I don't ever look back because I just think there's no point. <laughs> I just yeah. think it is what it is. I mean, you know, of every, you know, I made, I faced with a choice, I've made one decision and not another. I mean, I had a, a ground rule <clears throat> all the way through was that I went out of my way to try and make sure I had as much time in the studio as possible. So I would, obviously I had to make a living. So I taught and I did, well, when I first came back from Japan, I used to do Japanese interpreting, which was quite well paid, but I would always make sure the balance was in favor of me being in the studio. And that was very important. And you have published multiple books. Only two. (laughs) Well, two more than me. Um, and you've also uh, done a period of lecturing um, at Camberwell. Um, and so how does it feel to be kind of passing on that knowledge and being a teacher to a new generation of students, um, considering you were obviously like everyone else once yourself? Um, I really, I really enjoyed my time teaching. Um, and I think one of the things I used to reflect on because you in your when you always remember the teachers who inspired you I mean I think nearly everybody has got a teacher who really inspired them I mean in my case when I was at school it was the one of the art teachers not the one who said I'd never get into art school one of the art teachers and my history teacher and actually my German teacher and when you analyse why were they my favourite teachers, I mean, obviously they were good at their job and good at their subjects, but more than anything else, they were very imaginative in the way they taught. 
but they also gave you confidence in your ability that you could grow and go somewhere, get somewhere. And it's offering the next generation that feeling of possibility. So I, I, I mean, I really, I know some people feel that you have to be brutal to teach people and slap them down and belittle them and shout at them. But my view is that it doesn't work, that actually it's much better to encourage rather than shout. Yeah. And you were talking about the teachers just now. And I think that that support network is so important for to be able to be successful. Yeah. And I think one of the things which I think also has changed compared to when I was a student, when I was a student, an art student, and we would have crits of our work, they were really quite aggressive and brutal often and people's work would be torn to bits and yet when I was teaching and also when I've done crits here in the Royal Academy and with the students I think students now are much nicer to each other than we were I think they're much more supportive and I think that means you come out of you know whether it's school or art school with a much better support group around you which I think is is very positive and to learn from each other. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And also that feeling that I think maybe then there was a feeling that it was like a zero-sum game. So if somebody else had an opportunity, then that meant you weren't going to get an opportunity. So everybody was kind of angry and jealous. Whereas I think, again, looking at my nephews, talking to them, there's much more of a feeling that if somebody else is successful, that means there's more to go around for everybody. It's not a zero-sum game. And I I, I mean, I may be completely wrong. You're the ones that's got to <laughs> I'm talking about your generation, but I think that's very positive. People often have conversations with others that strike them as particularly impactful. Is there a certain individual who you've worked with which you feel has had an influence over your life so far? Well... So when I when I was living in Japan, I don't know what it's like now, but back then as a foreigner, you had to have, you had to be sponsored by a Japanese citizen. And it was quite onerous. They had to sign this piece of paper. They had to, I think they even had to tell the local authorities how much their salary was. It was quite onerous. Um, but they also had to promise that if you misbehaved, they would pay for you to be repatriated. So they were sort of taking responsibility. It's a long story, but my sponsor was a rather wonderful Zen monk. And he'd led a very quite, he's had quite a difficult early life. And he'd, as a, as a teenager, he wanted, he'd realised that what he wanted to do was just sort of check out of normal daily life and become a Zen monk. So he went to one of the temples and the, the abbot of the temple said, you can only do this once you've looked after. By then he only had his mother left. I think, you know, you've got to look after your mother until she dies and then you can consider this. So, of course, his mother lived to be God knows what. And it wasn't until he was in his 40s, I think, that he finally was able to go to a monastery and become a Zen monk. But... Talking to him was really interesting because it was somebody who had spent huge amounts of time in complete isolation, just with the thoughts rattling around his head. 
and also how you tame those thoughts that are rattling around your head. So to be, you know, fully qualified as a monk, he had to meditate sitting in the open, well, he was sitting on an open platform of a temple in the winter for a week with no sleep. You know, you just go 24-7 with a bowl of rice a day and some tea or something. But it was extraordinary. Every night I'd go and visit him about once a month. And we, and it was just extraordinary being in the presence of somebody for whom so much of the sort of everyday things we get caught up with mean absolutely nothing. And that was very, well, I can't achieve it, but it's a, it's a wonderful mindset if you can manage it. Well, yeah, in a world which is moving so rapidly, to be yeah. in the present, but not yeah. in a way that is... You're, you're you're almost completely just shutting everything else out. Um, so when you were, when you were with him, I mean, I can imagine that for him it was almost coming out of that Zen state to be kind of present with you. <laughs> well, the funny thing about him was he was he was full of contradictions. So I'd go and visit him, and I don't know why. I think I don't know why, but he always had daytime television on with dreadful TV programs, you know, quiz programs and awful, awful game shows and things. And we would have to have these conversations with that noise in the background. But it was it was almost as if that somehow, for him, the presence of that noisy world helped him leave that noisy world somehow. So he didn't live in idyllic silence. He lived against the backdrop of daytime TV, which was bizarre. And what's so nice is to hear about how, you know, you're constantly learning things even once you've left you know school because I think that life in itself is an opportunity to learn and so based on that thinking about your time in education what would you say needs to be changed or what would you want to change if you could oh gosh Hmm. Do you mean what level of education? Do you mean do you mean second GCSE A level? GCSE A level. Well, I mean, in an ideal world, and I don't know how you do this, but I would really like to get rid of as much rote learning as possible, um, because I think I mean, obviously, there was a time when we all had to remember the kings of England because we. But now, so much of the information that we need is at our fingertips that you think, well, obviously it's it's the certain amount of general knowledge we need, but how deadening that is, just having endless tick box exams. Do you remember this? Don't you remember this? And I saw that happen in Japan because the Japanese education system moved and it is still pretty much rote learning and just sort of endless, endless exams. And it's deadening to the soul, really. I mean, obviously... You know, people need to, if you're going to be a doctor, I'd rather you'd remembered some things, taken some yeah. stuff. But, you know, I think this is where art, the arts in general are so fundamental is that ultimately they're about the human soul. And ultimately, again, that's that's probably the most important part of a person. You said, obviously, you don't like to think too much about the past, but if your 13 year old self was sat in front of you you could tell her one thing whether it be a piece of advice or just a warning of something to come what would what would that be <laughs> well I've got I've always had a habit of volunteering so I'm you know if somebody says would somebody like to do that I was 
person who'd stick their hand up. Ah, okay. So I would be blackboard monitor or whatever. And when I was elected a Royal Academician, you come to council and the president gives you your medal. So when I came to council, to, when I was first elected, I was given my medal and the president then said, would you like to say a few words? And of course, I hadn't prepared anything. And so I just said, oh, um, well, I hope I can be useful. And of course, look what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make yourself too useful, probably. <laughs> and just hearing you speak about how you're always one to volunteer, that is something that is so interesting when speaking to people. I think the people who throw themselves into every opportunity that comes at them are the ones who tend to be more successful than others. So is that something you, that you would... Well, kind of... if there's something... So I very often do a sort of thought exercise and think, okay, so I'm going to do this. What is the worst thing that can happen? And if you then stare the worst thing that can happen in the face, in the face, you can actually you think, you know what, I'm just going to give it a go. This would not extend, I hasten to tell you, to skydiving or anything like that. <laughs> it would scare me rigid. But you know, sometimes people say to me, Oh gosh, you have to give so many, you know, you have to make these speeches in front of important people at the Royal Academy. And, you know, if the first time I did it, I was a bit nervous. But then you look at it and you think, OK, so what's the worst thing that can happen? And you mm. think, I, I, I say, the, you know, I get it wrong. I mess it up or whatever. People are human. And I just think, get over it, really. If I mess up my speech, so what? And what's it like for you being amongst a, a group of such kind of diverse range of artists in all practices and mm. many of whom are extremely well-known and influential because yeah. you in your position are, are almost above them in a sense how, yeah. how does that feel so I mean that's one of the extraordinary things about the Royal Academy going back to talking about creativity is that it is an organization that is made up of some of them live a long time so we've got 120 Royal Academicians our oldest one she's 103 and still painting so it's an extraordinary privilege to be with this amazing group of people. But as president, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm above them. In my eyes, all academicians are equal. You know, some of them happen to be, you know, they're more famous than some of the others, but they're all royal academicians. They all have that value. Yes, and I mean, it's a bit like people and their children. I mean, people rarely say, oh, yes, I've got three children and he's my favourite. <laughs> so... So, I mean, all academicians are equal in my eyes. Yeah. Sometimes when we're faced with exciting opportunities, that also comes with pressures and expectations. And thinking about you being the first female president as well, that must have come with huge expectations and pressures so that you, you know, you were saying how you didn't want to leave a bad reputation for future yeah. presidents. I mean, I was lucky in that I, when I was elected, I was elected with a lot of support. And so I felt that I, I felt incredibly supported and I, and I still do. And the only way I can do this job is because, you know, obviously there's the support of the Royal Academicians and the, the staff of the Royal Academy who are amazing. And so, you know, I'm able to do this job because behind me are all these amazing people making sure it, it it goes okay. And once you have sort of run your time as president, what do you see the future of the Royal Academy looking? 
Well, I, at the moment, one of my biggest concerns is the lack of art teaching in schools, in state schools. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of future president trying to elect royal academicians, maybe in 50 years time, and looking around and thinking, well, we haven't got many artists because you've got generations of children who've had no art teaching in school. So I want to make sure that I do my best to speak out on this and try and extend the reach of the Royal Academy, whether it's digitally or through schools coming to the Royal Academy, so that every child knows that it's possible to be an artist. Or not everybody needs to become an artist, but I would love every child to feel at home in an art gallery and feel that, you know, maybe if they had, I don't know, a difficult day at work, they would go to an art gallery to look at a painting and maybe feel better. Because art is, in a sense, still quite elitist based on, like, if you purely look at just access to it, you have to really travel to get to places. Like, if I were to go up to London, for me, I'm lucky in the sense that I can do that. But for others, there's just not the option. The art has to come Mm. to them and a lot of the time it's just not there. Which is why I think, I mean, I know it's the second best, but I think a lot can be achieved digitally. And even if it just gives one child the feeling that this is possible for them, then it's all worth it. It's that support as well. You were um, speaking about with the lack of support from your teachers. I think that's so important that we have support from our teachers, but also from our friends and family, because so often kids will talk about their desires for what they want to do with their future careers and they'll say I want to be an astronaut or I want to be an artist or I want to be the president of the Royal Academy and people will go oh that'll never happen and that can be hugely damaging to um, people's self-confidence. Absolutely and again the thing about having access to all the arts whether it's music theatre or art when you're when you're young is that you know, so you don't go off and become an artist. Maybe you go off and become some, I don't know, top lawyer or something. But having that that understanding and that appreciation of art will change the way you're a lawyer, I think, because you will have that in you. So I just think it's invaluable. And Eddie Hamilton, our previous guest, who's a film editor of Top Gun, he was speaking about the importance of not forgetting creativity because if you're amazing at physics but you also love being creative there's so many other options um where you can embrace that creativity and discover a whole plethora of careers that you didn't think would be available to you absolutely and i just think learning to you know looking at art you learn to think in different ways and you use probably different parts of your brain and that's a wonderful skill to have. So when you are a, a lawyer, an accountant, or whatever you are, being able to switch your brain a bit, a bit in the way that, you know, when I went to, first went to Japan and saw the world the other way around, it's invaluable still to me. So occasionally when I'm in the studio, if I'm really struggling with a painting, um, instead of thinking about the painting in English, I will look at it and think about it in Japanese because that unlocks a different part of my brain. That skill is, you can't put a price on it. It's creativity. It's just a different part of the brain. 
and in a more simpler way for just anyone it's just about readjusting the way you think and, and the way you see things not only the way you see art but just the world around you and mm. sort of how you're taking in that environment mm. yeah exactly yeah for this new generation of artists and creatives if you could give them three pieces of advice what would three? you Gosh. give them <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot <laughs> Well, I mean, this is a really practical difficulty at the moment. So now, you know, when I graduated from art school, I didn't have any student debt. I'd had a virtually free education. And so I was able to move up to London. Okay, that was difficult. But, you know, ultimately, well, obviously, I went off to Japan. But, you know, now, if you're coming out of art school, you're laden with debt. And if you want to continue working as an artist and maybe finding a studio, you've got to be able to pay for somewhere to live. You've got to be able to pay for a studio. And that's really, really hard now. Really hard. Um, so, so, I mean, in a practical way, if you if if anybody could get some kind of skill that I don't know, it's probably going to be a digital skill, frankly, where you get paid quite well for short hours, a bit like me te teaching English in Japan. If you've got that skill, that will help help you earn enough money to be able to spend time in your studio. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is to somehow keep faith with what you're doing, because there's so many, you know, the art world is a world of trends, and it's very easy to look around and think, oh, obviously that's what's trendy. You go to the art fairs and you see what's at the art fair and you think, oh, maybe I should do work like that or work like that. And the danger there is that you lose touch with that inner core of yourself and what your work is about. Mm. And so I would advise people to go and see what other people are doing, but then keep hold of what, you, what you're growing within yourself. Be true to yourself. At one point, um, this is before I was an academician, you know, and you'd go to dinner parties or whatever and people would say, what do you do? And you'd say, well, you're an artist. And the first question was usually, do you do portraits? And then when you said you didn't do portraits, you're an abstract painter, they were always a little bit disappointed. But then the next question, and this is the most difficult one, is they'd say, are you successful? Now, in their heads, what they meant by are you, are you successful is, um, are you famous? And should I have heard of you? And of course, those things are very different. And of course, in my head, I had a very clear definition of successful, because if your definition of successful is being famous, you're going to spend a lot of your life very sad, because you're not going to be famous, realistically. Um, and so my definition of successful was if I produced a piece of work that I felt was OK, that had moved on from the one I'd done before, and that success for me was putting it away in a drawer or storing it somewhere. And whatever happened to it afterwards was nothing to do with me. I'd done my bit. So if it was exhibited in a gallery, fair enough. If it wasn't exhibited in a gallery, fair enough. My job was to produce it. It's what's personal to you. Success yeah. is individual for everyone. And then finally, thinking back to education, yes. with 
your subject choices going through those o-level choices and those a-level choices Mm. if you knew what you knew now was there was there something that you would would you not take a subject would you um you know not do a levels would you still go Um, to art school well i i mean one of my biggest regrets and this is because i'm just not clever enough but i really wish i could understand mathematics i mean i just don't understand it i find that quite upsetting because real mathematics is incredibly creative Mm -hmm isn't it? Proper mathematicians. And if I could be granted one wish, I would like to inhabit the brain of a one of those sort of pure mathematicians for a day and actually be able to understand because my brain is way too literal and I don't understand. And because ultimately all these subjects, we, we kind of tend to categorise them into different boxes, but they are interwoven. And when I've looked at pieces of your art, I can see those different influences and, and actually the maybe things you may not think have a value they do and they will show themselves later on Mm. yeah so again a bit like you know i actually don't regret any of you know that's the thing is i wish i could understand maths apart from that i just look forward i just think whatever well it's it's a a good way to go about it a fresh outlook because i think sometimes people can get quite stuck up in their past and thinking over what went wrong instead of thinking to the future yeah, exactly. And even if something's gone wrong, you learn a lot from it. I mean, I'm a big fan of failure. Mm-hmm. I think failure is so important. And so I, I, with students, I always talk about failure quite a lot because I think it's really important to, to understand how valuable it is and how positive it is. Well, it's been so lovely to have you on the podcast and to hear you talk about how creativity kind of underpins all professions as well. And how we shouldn't lose value when lose value when thinking of that. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, and can I ask you a question? Can yes, I ask of course. Go ahead. And what direction have you any idea? What direction you want to head in? <laughs> wow, that is always a dangerous question. I, I mean, for for me, I don't know if I can speak for both of us because we are both quite arty and we are interested in that sort of area but also Mm -hmm. we like our English as well and that's something I get told a lot recently is go for a subject which you have which will give you a good foundation and then expand from that but for me through starting this podcast I've been given so many amazing opportunities to speak to so many cool individuals like yourself and so I think if I could do anything I'd love to pursue a career in journalism as well what you were talking about with creativity we both do art at a level and i think that is such a important skill in and of itself but also as a transferable skill as well i agree absolutely absolutely thank you so much for listening to this episode of talking to the top talking to the top is hosted and produced by myself edward brooke and co-hosted by freddie Feynman. it was edited by james crawford and the music was created by daniel marks If you enjoyed this episode of Talking to the Top, please leave us a rating and review letting us know what you think and follow us on Instagram at Talking to the Top.